Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights. Another question that I'm going to address. Combine a couple questions. They relate to price fluctuations. I'm going to lump a few things together, address that topic today. Thanks, sponsors, Tops, Panini, and Upper Deck, Heritage Auctions, Huggins and Scott Auctions, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Burbank Sports Cards, Comsi.com, and Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentications. I've been a price guide guy pretty much, now, not all my life, but I moved into that pretty quickly. When I got my PhD and I was looking for, not necessarily to conquer the world, but to apply what I'd learned, I was a professor, but I loved the hobby and I could easily see that not having a comprehensive price guide was a real limit to growth of our industry. When I started out, I wasn't really thinking about price fluctuations because prices didn't move that fast in those days. There wasn't the perception. There was a static pricing model of this is what Gaudis are worth, this is what play balls are worth, and this is what 52 tops are worth in this condition, in this series. So those were simpler days. The fluctuations were, there wasn't the on-field performance that dramatically, there wasn't a rookie orientation in those days. I didn't think of it as price fluctuations, much as price guide, what the cards were selling for, and there wasn't a dramatic movement. However, in physics, <laughs> there's something called the observer effect, which is when the actual act of observing something influences the phenomenon being observed. I'm not saying the watch pot never boils, but if you're watching something, observing something, the frequency of that observation, the frequency of that reporting tends to have some effect. My point would be, back in the early days, the price fluctuations, when the observation, even though there were observations during the year, when I was doing annual price guides, you're basically pulling everything together from the year to get the New Year's pricing. When we went to the monthlies with the Beckett Baseball Card Monthly first and the other sports, we were accumulating during the month what the sales were and non-sales and trying to figure out whether the price had moved, fluctuated, up, down, again, usually up. Just the fact that we were observing it more frequently starting in 1984 meant, I think there was a correlation. It was proportional to more observation. We were more noticing that things were moving during the month and, and hence you saw the up and down errors, mostly up errors. In the almanac world and then the magazine world, but now the price fluctuations are much more frequent. It's daily would not even be accurate. I think sometimes things can move uh, by the hour. That was the case back in the day. Occasionally at a card show, there would be movement during the weekend on a, a hot card, but that was the exception. That was very exciting when it happened. There'd be a buzz. So now uh, a monthly price guide is a price guide for a fixed point in time. We had that dilemma when we were doing the monthly price guides. If a card is selling for a dollar, I'll just i give you simple numbers here. If the, let's say we're going to do the baseball magazine. It's going to come out in week one and it takes a week to print. If in week one, when the previous episode comes out and the card is a dollar, and then the guy does something great and everybody recognizes the cards. Now $2 in the second week. And maybe it's $3 in the third week. And in the fourth week, it's $4. The price guy's going to come out the following week. Here's what's happening now, just to put it in a nutshell, is that nowadays algorithmic ratio pricing is saying that's a $5 card because it's gone one, two, three, four. Everybody knows what comes after. The discipline we had in doing the price guide, at least when I was in charge, is that it's still a $4 card, even though it looks like it's trending to five. That hasn't happened. We realize that we can anticipate that it probably will, but anticipatory pricing, uh, again, a bull market, you're probably going to be right most of the time. But I personally was very careful about that. So that's not happening now. If something's one, two, three, four, people are saying, I better get it at five. And so a recognition that uh, five is a fair price for a card that's never sold for five. It's been a $4 card, but it's one, two, three, four. The problem with some of that is I've heard mentioning that when a card sells for a certain price, 
then that set the new market. And what they mean by that is a one singular price. When we were doing the price guides and the price fluctuations, we were trying to weed out unusually a trimmed mean, if you want to look that up. But the highest could be outliers, extremely high and extremely low could be outliers. And we wanted to look at the mainstream of what was selling, what most people were paying. We had a price range, which would give us a chance in the magazine to express that all cards don't sell exactly the same. But I don't think it sets the market. If we were to do price guides every month or every year, then you'd see the ebb and flow within the year that those uh, higher prices would not set a new market. It would be in the context of the sales during that month or during that year. That's what's happening with the Michael Jordan rookie card. When a PSA 10 goes for over $700,000, a couple of them, then does that set the market or is that does that set a ceiling? It's so highly publicized. I'm unwilling to say that's the new market. That was a, a bidding that at least two people <laughs> bid it up. And the next uh, opportunity, that's such a high price for a card that is not only not scarce, there's still an open product of 86, 87 Flare out there. So, so some pullback from a really high price on the 86, 87 Michael Jordan rookie card Flare. I, I don't have a problem with that. In fact, that may be a, a rational response to doing the math. You've got to look at the ratio of sales to the, the total number of cards out there. If there's a thousand cards and one of them sells for a high price, there's still 999 others. They don't necessarily all go together. It depends on the float of what's out there. If it's rarely traded, that's one thing. But there's Michael Jordan PSA 10s, FLIR rookie cards in almost every high-end auction, and there are more to come. So that's a price fluctuation that I don't have a problem with because, again, in this industry, I'm worried about people leaving the industry frustrated. I don't think they're going to leave the industry frustrated if they see a very high profile card peak or come down a little bit because there's so many other alternatives, even within that player. If the perception that card is so fully priced, there's no room to go up or it could go down. You feel that price is too high, go to something else. And I believe people are doing that. It begs the question of what kind of a market cap definition should we hold? There's many ways to define the market cap. I think the narrowest way is to define the market cap of, say, the Michael Jordan Fleer rookie card as the market cap of the PSA 10s. Why wouldn't you want to include the BGS 9.5s or their 10s or SGC for that matter? There's a lot of raw ones out there. So defining the market cap in a broader sense makes you catch your breath and say, wow, there's a lot of money that is implicitly tied up in that particular card. What about the market cap for the other conditions? What about uh, market cap for the other cards of that player that the fans would want to have? And then there's always other players. If Michael Jordan is too high, then you, you go to Kobe or LeBron or you go to Scottie Pippen. There's any number of alternatives. And that's what makes the hobby great. The price fluctuations in terms of the player, not just the, the fluctuation of a price, but the movement of players within the grid is uh, another interesting I won't say it's a game to play, but it's certainly an investment strategy. Picking players that are on their way up, selling players that have peaked. I see that as healthy. And uh, even though I'd love the simpler world where things were changing annually or monthly, but it's more instantaneous now. Okay, what has also really helped that is the movement toward fractional within our hobby, I, I see is way more positive than negative. However, all of these fractional platforms, it, it's not just buying. They need, don't get into it if you don't think they're buying it because there's... It's fun to own a piece of something, but uh, you don't want to overpay in a fractional sense any more than you want to overpay in buying the the whole asset. But they're all going to be moving toward not day trading, but uh, trading in your portfolio, these fractional assets that you maintained, and there'll be a, a bid and an ask. 
and is that bad? Anything that adds to liquidity of the hobby, I think is positive. It gives confidence to the buyer that if I want to get out, I can. Now, at what price? But if those bid and ask spreads are are narrow, which uh, they really could be if they're managed, I, I think that could be a dynamic element. So then the question is, which I haven't heard addressed, is that if the fractional asset in total is $100,000 for a card and you own 1% of it, then is that 1% $1,000? And I think most people, well, of course it is. 1% of 100000 is $1,000. But that's not the way most things work. That's not the way real estate works. If you want to buy 100 acres for $100,000, you're not going to be able to buy one acre <laughs> out of that parcel for $1,000. Uh, you would you would have to pay more. There's a quantity discount for buying the larger parcel. It's an estate planning technique that if you had a, a limited partnership, then a minority interest in a limited partnership is almost always discounted, and that's discounted for lack of control. You can't necessarily buy and sell it freely. You're subject to the rules of, of that limited partnership. Again, these are situations where it could be worth more, it could be worth less. Okay, Where in the fractional, I'm thinking that it probably could be worth more because Again, it's not like real estate or a limited partnership. We found in these fractionals that even if you want to sell and cash out, you can't uh, in, for the total asset, but you probably will be able to trade out on the platform that they have. The great thing about the fractional is that you get bragging rights. You own 1% of a Wagner or you own 1% of a 52 tops mantle that you would not otherwise be able to afford. So would you be willing to pay more than if you own 1% of it, would you be willing to pay a little bit more than 1% of the value that it was in for? My guess is you would. And then as that asset trades up or down, you have the chance to cash out or acquire more. What I haven't figured out is there are twice as much bragging rights for owning 2% of a mantle, 52 tops, as opposed to having a 1% interest. If you're a smart guy and you've got 200 shares of Apple instead of 100 shares of Apple, you have shares of Apple. It's been a very excellent performing stock. I actually had some sold. <laughs> Obviously, there's one philosophy of investing that basically says, and it's true of bull markets, is never sell. <laughs> Whatever you buy, just hang on. The people that are in and out don't make as much money as, as the people that ride out the price fluctuations and just buy and hold. I think that's a good note to end on. So thanks for your question questions, price fluctuations, the act of observing it, the more frequently you look at the price fluctuations, the more they fluctuate. And I know that's going to happen in the fractional, but as long as it's dynamic and as long as it has some liquidity and people can have fun, I'm in favor of it. And I look forward to uh, seeing how things go. Thanks everybody. Be back again tomorrow with another episode. The man in the house of cards. The man is doing all right.